Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. This is episode 23, originally recorded live on July 29, 2011. In this episode, Rabbi Shalom reviews the book, The Good Book, A Humanist Bible, by A.C. Grayling. For more information about Kol Hadash, please visit our website at kolhadash.com. One last programming note. Our next podcast will be the Arev Rosh Hashanah Sermon, which is on the 28th of September. I hope you can join us for our high holiday celebrations in Lake Forest, Illinois. But if not, I'll have the sermon portions available for download as quickly as possible. When I was in high school, I took a class called Satire. We read a number of satirical works on romance, on love, on courage. And as one of our assignments, we had to do a parody of something. So I chose to do a Bible parody by telling the story of the three little pigs in biblical format. And so I made two columns of text. I put in chapters and verses. I had long lists of things that seemed to have nothing to do with anything else and genealogies. And um, I used archaic biblical King James-ish kind of language to describe the three pigs who huffeth and puffeth, and the, you know, the wolf that huffeth and puffeth and bloweth the house down. And, of course, there was divine intervention at the end of the story to save the pigs. Now, it was a little sophomoric, although I was a senior at the time. It was still a sophomoric effort. And it was mocking, but it was a lot of fun to write. Now, I want to ask a question. You might think you know the answer. What is a Bible? Now, we're generally familiar with the religious use of the term. Although, of course, there are variations. There's the Hebrew Bible versus the Christian Bible with an Old Testament and a New Testament. And even the Hebrew Bible is not exactly the same as the Old Testament because the books are in a different order. There's also the Protestant Bible versus the Catholic Bible because the Catholic Bible includes a lot of other books that were taken out of the Protestant Bible, put in a separate section called the Apocrypha. Now, these religious Bibles, separate from translations, of course, because there's the King James Version and the revised version, and the new revised standard version, and the new international version, and the so on and so on. Well, these religious Bibles were made up of several books that vary widely in style, in their theme, in their major focus, even in their theology. Uh, God is a very different character in the books of the prophets than he is at the beginning of the book of Genesis, or in the book of Job, or Ecclesiastes. Some of them are legal texts, with ritual or ethical or social laws. Some of them claim to describe the history of the Jewish people. Some of them claim to be prophetic, either about the past or the future. Some of them are ethical discussions, and some of them are prayers and hopes for the future. Now, from our perspective as humanists, we believe the Bible was written by many people over many centuries. Traditional perspective, as you would hear in a traditional synagogue when the Torah is taken out, Zota Torah, Asher Sam Moshe. This is the Torah that Moses placed before the people of Israel by the mouth of God and the hand of Moses. That's the traditional blessing. And that's the theology that God dictated, directed, inspired, revealed this text. And that's why in a traditional Jewish setting, you read the Torah every week. Because if God gave you the manual for life, you'd better study it over and over again. It's why in fundamentalist Christianity, the Bible is so well studied. They can quote you chapter and verse because if the master of the universe told you exactly what to do to get your eternal reward, how dumb do you have to be to ignore it? 
Now, for many, the Bible, their Bible, is their foundation of religious authority. Even though in many traditions, the Bible is the beginning but not the end, you have later interpretations, Talmudic law, Catholic law, canon law, that really tell you what to do, and don't go back to the Bible by itself. Now, for us, even if we don't follow the religious laws of the Bible, or even later interpretations of those laws, we do see the Bible as foundational for Jewish culture. It's a foundation of Jewish literature and thought, even if we don't have to follow everything that it says. Now, when I say what is a Bible, of course, we have to realize that today the term Bible doesn't only apply to the Bible, because you can have the plumber's Bible, the wine lover's Bible, the tourist's Bible. So when you say Bible there, it doesn't mean it was given by God how to fix the pipes or what wines to drink. It means it's the authoritative how-to guide. And it's a parallel. You see, the religious Bible is the guide for life. The plumber's Bible is the guide to pipes. Now, what does a humanist or a humanistic Jew, for that matter, do with the religious Bible? Well, one option has been historically to reject it. You celebrate the errors and mistakes of the Bible. Or you criticize the Bible for being too violent and too sexist and too whatever. Of course, the irony is that you have to know it to criticize it. You spend all your time studying it to find out what's wrong with it, but in the end, you're still studying it. A second option is what I would call strip mining. You go down and you look for what's good and you chuck everything else. You find the relevant sources in the book of Job, the book of Ecclesiastes or Song of Songs. You find the poetry and literature that speaks to you and... Maybe you even cut out the stuff that you like. In fact, when Thomas Jefferson made his so-called Jefferson Bible, he literally cut and pasted the stuff that he liked and left out the miracles and the divinity stuff. And he actually called his book The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Not Christ, not Messiah, Jesus from where he came from. Now, a third option, not cutting and pasting and not chucking out the window, is to try and replace it. Now, there certainly have been secular people over the last couple centuries who have adopted a kind of holy writ equivalent. Imagine people for whom Karl Marx was the source of absolute truth, and his scientific socialism was absolutely the only way to understand history and the future. Or on the other end of the spectrum, those for whom Ayn Rand has become a kind of holy writ, where anything she says is absolutely true about the way the government works, about the way society should work. Just read the book. Read the Bible, the new Bible. But do humanists really need a Bible? And what would it be? Would it be a how-to manual with best advice and many options, like a plumber's Bible? Or would it be a source of authority, a central document, authoritative, even authoritarian? And can you even make a new Bible, a real Bible with philosophical content to it, without some kind of revelation? After all, we've had a new Bible created in the last 200 years. It's called the Book of Mormon. It has the function of a Bible, but it has a story of revelation. Those golden tablets that Joseph Smith supposedly found in the woods of New York, that's a story of revelation to give authority to this new Bible. Well, maybe, just maybe, you can try and make a new Bible a different way. Not by revelation of something new, but by claiming to be something old. After all, our approach to the Bible, our respect for the Bible, comes from the fact that it's old, not because it's cosmically true. So maybe if you can find an old tradition or many old traditions to draw on, you could create 
a new Bible based on an old tradition that has the resonance of the past. And this is what A.C. Grayling, in creating the good book, has tried to do. He's tried to mine the world history of secular thought to find the sources of inspiration and insight to make a new Bible. But I have to say, he has limited success. Now, who is A.C. Grayling? He's a British philosopher. He's very active in the public discourse on philosophy. In fact, he wrote a very well-received book in 2006 exploring the morality of the bombings of um, Dresden in Germany and uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki in the Second World War, an important contribution to the ethics of war. Um, but he's also written plenty on uh, atheism in public. He's the vice president of the British Humanist Association. And uh, so he created this book, intended to challenge the religious, of course. You don't call it the good book or a humanist Bible without trying to tweak somebody. His goal is to create a compilation of the wisdom of the human experience and the humanist tradition, but put into his own voice and in a kind of biblical style. And so he's rewritten some things and it's set up in columns and it's got chapter and verse. It's divided into 12 different books. Um, and one of the challenges is he doesn't always give his sources. So he'll say in the back, the wisdom in this book came from lots of different places. And he gives a list of a bunch of people he drew. But he doesn't say when he has a good phrase, this comes from so-and-so page whatever. It just comes from the font of knowledge. And in some ways it's a frustration. Because I'm the kind of person who'd like to go read the original. If someone said something good, I want to know what he said it near and what else he said. Or she said, for that matter. But his approach was, and he describes what he did, he did just what the Bible makers did with sacred texts reworking them into a great treasury of insight and consolation and inspiration and uplift and understanding from the great non-religious traditions of the world. But by doing that, chop and splice and dice, putting it in his own words, he makes it hard to find out what they really said. Now, I have two general complaints about the book, and I will say at the outset, it's a lot easier to complain than to write. He's written a 600-page book that's largely very good, and so it's easy for me to sit here and say, well, you should have done this, and you should have done that. You know, when I write my book, he can do a review and be equally as critical. My first complaint is that he spends too much focus on dweems. What are dweems? Dead, white, European males. The classical model of the Western canon. They're old and dead. They are white. They are European, and they're men. Now, I know he's a philosopher. That's his metier, his field. He's read a lot about Greeks and Romans. But if his goal is to create a collection of human wisdom and human experience, he needs to go a little bit further afield. Now, another writer has done this in a remarkable way. Her name is Jennifer Michael Hecht, and she wrote a marvelous book called Doubt a History. And in this book, she studies skeptical thought, but not only in Europe or in the Middle East. She goes into Africa, she goes into Asia, into the Islamic world in the Middle Ages, into Buddhist thought in China and India. And so it's a fascinating world tour of skeptical thought. That's the kind of variety of sources you should bring. The names in his stories, in his parables, in his legends, in his this famous persons, they're all Greek. Why not include an English name, Jonathan said? Why not include an Italian name, an African name, an Asian name. Why not? 
You're just telling fables. Why do they all have to be Greek? After all, if the goal is to be relevant to everyone, then you need to reflect a different kind of person than just another dweem. As one example, he has a book he calls Songs, to parallel to Psalms in the Bible. Um, and in that section, he frankly acknowledges and celebrates sexuality and desire and life's force for creating itself in very eloquent ways. But unless I missed it in going through that book, his orientation in the book is almost exclusively heterosexual and a man talking to a woman. Your eyes and your hair and your breasts and your thighs. But he doesn't talk as if it's a woman's voice to a man. And in some ways, the original Bible is a little more progressive because the Song of Songs goes back and forth. The man talks to the woman, the woman talks to the man. In this case, it's A.C. Grayling talking to the object of his desire, which is fine. But again, more voices, please. Even as a couple of points, um, talks about the need for children as if that's assumed. In his book of Proverbs, he writes, better unborn, unborn than unbred. Or those without children do not know love. Really? Really? I mean, after all, female humanists, gay humanists, adult, unchilded humanists are looking for inspiration. They want to find quotable material, too. If this is a humanist Bible that speaks to everyone, then it should speak to more than just one model of family or person. Now, he's not anti-feminist at all. As I mentioned, he's in favor of an open and clear and accepting sexuality. He has a marvelous parable in his book of parables about a farmer's daughter, which is unlike most of the farmer's daughter's stories you're used to hearing. Um, in this case, a wise man is traveling asking riddles, and it's only the farmer's daughter who can figure out what he means by his riddle. And she asks him a riddle back, and he gets it, and they fall in love because of their intellectual discourse they have with each other. This is not the classical farmer's daughter story. Um, so he's not anti-feminist in any way. It's just the choice of voice. And the second complaint I had is that sometimes he's a little too what I would call classical enlightenment. Things are black and white, the good and the bad. Reason versus emotion. In fact, in wisdom chapters, his book of wisdom, chapter six, the wise see the necessity of things. And by this, they free themselves from distress for the pain arising from loss is mitigated as soon as its inevitability is perceived. That is, if you know it was inevitable that you were going to suffer, then eh, who cares? My brain doesn't work that way. I can't make a split between reason and emotion. Saying, I know death is inevitable, and I know why someone died so I don't get sad, doesn't work that way. And sometimes he's a little too serious and too strict. One of his pieces of advice, avoid swearing, if possible, altogether. If not, as far as you are able. My response was, why the hell? <laughs> why the hell not, if it's appropriate? Sometimes it's appropriate. Actually, I said something else, but uh, not fit for publication. Don't be sorrowful too much. Who are you to tell me how to grieve? I could be as sorrowful as I need to be. He talks about the importance of manners for polite society. I understand that. He talks about the power of being a positive example, of being strong, facing life with courage. I understand that, too. But in some ways, he's a little too didactic. The advice after advice after advice after advice after advice leads you to say, well, can't I live my own life? Isn't that one of the pieces of advice? After all, there's an irony to a humanist self-help book. If the point is self-help, 
What am I doing telling you what to do? Now, I want to take you on a tour of the book because he has 12 sections. Each of them are interesting in his choice of what to include and what not to include as a parable and a parallel to the traditional Bible. He begins with a book he calls Genesis. Now, the book is 600 pages long, double column. It's a long book. You can't tell by this edition, of course. But uh, on the Kindle, it's a little bit lighter. Genesis chapter 1. In the garden stands a tree. In summertime, it bears flowers. In the autumn, fruit. Its fruit is knowledge, teaching the world gardener how to understand the world. From it, he learns how the tree grows from seed to sapling, from sapling to maturity, at last ready to offer more life, and from maturity to age and sleep, whence it returns to the elements of things. The elements, in turn, feed new births, such is nature's method and its parallel with the course of humankind. It was from the fall of a fruit from such a tree that new inspiration came for inquiry into the nature of things when Newton sat in his garden and saw what no one had seen before, that an apple draws the earth to itself and the earth the apple. Very creative. The tree of knowledge from the Garden of Eden, the apple, the fall, but in this case, it's not the fall of Adam and Eve, it's the fall of the apple that inspired Newton to discover gravity and the way things work. The model of the tree growing and creating new life and dying and giving life to new things as a model for the universe. It's wonderfully creative at how things truly come to be. It continues in chapter 2. Those who first set themselves to discover nature's secrets and designs, fearlessly opposing mankind's early ignorance, deserve our praise. Who are his heroes? Those who seek knowledge, the eaves who eat the tree of knowledge. Read from the tree of knowledge. For they began the quest to measure what was once unmeasurable, to discern its laws and to conquer time itself by understanding. New eyes were needed to see what lay hidden in ignorance, new language to express the unknown, new hope that the world would reveal itself to inquiry and investigation. They sought to unfold the world's primordial sources asking how nature yields its abundance and fosters it, and where in its course everything goes when it ends, either to change or cease. In the beginning, there was this, this search for knowledge. And we went back to the beginnings of things and found out where those truly came from. It's about the power of knowledge. It's about the origins of humanity in the natural world and the development of the course of evolution. It's our creation story. Now, it's not always graceful and beautiful. The beginning is very nice. In chapter 14, he says this. This is the order and discipline of science. We are to look upon propositions collected by general induction from phenomena as accurately or nearly true, notwithstanding any contrary hypothesis that may be imagined. Okay. <laughs> not particularly inspirational poetic language. Certainly a scientist or a philosopher would have no trouble deciphering that sentence, but for the lay audience, uh, a little bit dense. You might need clergy to interpret that for you so you know what's going on. Now, his second book after Genesis is the Book of Wisdom. And in the Book of Wisdom, the beginning rang a bell for me, and I was able to place it, even though, as I mentioned, he doesn't give you the sources, but I knew this one. He begins, Give your ears to hear what is said and your heart to understand what is meant. He whose works exceed his wisdom, his wisdom will endure. But he whose wisdom exceed his works, his wisdom will not endure. The mighty man is he who conquers himself. 
The rich man is he who is satisfied with what he has. The honorable man is he who honors others. But the wise man is he who learns from all men. It reminded me, Mihu Ashir. It's a passage from the Mishnah, the sayings of the fathers, the wisdom of the fathers, almost verbatim. Now, he's not quoting it as a collection of rabbis offering their thoughts on wisdom. Because, again, his agenda is, this is from the secular tradition of knowledge and wisdom. But if he's quoting rabbis, then maybe the door should be opened a little bit wider. Now, each chapter of this book of wisdom ends with the same line. It says, the question to be asked at the end of each day is, how long will you delay to be wise? I wait. There's so much to know. I remember Richard Dawkins being interviewed once, and someone said, if you don't believe in an afterlife, what's the point in getting up every day? His point was, there's so much to know in this life, and I only have one shot. I want to get up every morning and learn more. That's my challenge. That's my inspiration. That's why I get up in the morning. It's because this is it. And I better use it well. Now, his next book is called Parables. It's a collection of telling kind of Aesop's fables to demonstrate the human condition and valuable ethics, but he's not as good as Aesop, because all too often his parables are, so-and-so were walking on the way and talking and said, well, it's not a very convincing narrative. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not swept away with the drama or caught up in the characterization of two people walking and talking. It's not a very clever uh, framework. Sometimes his lesson might be. For example, one says to the other, is it ever right to tell a lie? And the answer is, in three cases, lying is permissible. In war, in reconciling man to man, and in appeasing one's spouse. Now, sometimes his parable is a direct replacement for a Bible story. For example, there's, there are two men who claim an inheritance after a father has died. One had to move away for a long time. One stayed in the town, claimed the inheritance wrongly. And so when there was a dispute, it came before the king. And the king said, what we will do is we will, uh, since this uh, man was so imprecise in his will, he deserves to be punished. We will dig up his bones and we will burn them in the public square. And the true son says, no, I would rather lose the inheritance than have my father dishonored. The other one says, sounds fair to me. Guess which one is the real son? Now, you might have heard the story of Solomon and the woman with one child who dies and one child who lives. They both claim the living child. And so he says, cut the kid in half. And the wrong mother says, sounds fair to me. Well, he could have just retold that story, but he wanted to do something different. And so he made his own parable with the same lesson as the Bible. You see, the trick is they're not as different, perhaps, as you might have thought. Because any tradition that responds to the human experience is going to say, life ends, grief happens, love is important, be nice to your neighbor. His next section is called Concord. It's on beauty, the importance of friendship. In many ways, it sounds like a platonic dialogue. You shouldn't be afraid to be friends because you're afraid to lose them. In fact, true friends correct each other and can handle being corrected. An interesting model for community and a wonderful model for how humanists seek truth together. You see, we all know a part of what we know as a people, as humanity, or as Jews. If we want to learn more, we have to learn from each other. Now, his next section is called Lamentations. It's on death and mourning. An important part of life, certainly for a humanistic perspective. 
But interestingly enough, there is a biblical book called Lamentations in Jewish life. It's read actually in this season uh, on the 9th of Av, which will be in a couple of weeks, in recollection of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. But this is not Lamentations, remembering a destruction. It's actually much more like Ecclesiastes, which is supposedly written by Solomon at the end of his days when he's old and bitter and lamenting that nothing he does is any good. What does Grayling's Lamentations say? To love is to contract for sorrow, since one of two must depart first, and affections diminish and vanish. To love what is made of nature is to love what changes and passes, and yet we must love, and so we must suffer. At the roadside lie possibilities of accident, disaster, and disease. At the road's end lie certainties of age and death. Even from our first setting out, we are beset. Now, the Buddhist response to this, if life is suffering, stop getting reincarnated. Find a way beyond the cycle. Find a way to lose it. If, you, if attachments cause pain, don't get attached. But a humanist response is, we are not human if we are not attached. So we seek love with the risk of loss. Now, shortly after Lamentations comes Consolations. It's a response. How do we cope with the difficulties of life and death? The next book turns to what he calls Sages. It's a collection of the Master said. Again, you get the vision. The Master's walking around, and the Master teaches, and the Master teaches, and the Master teaches. It's a kind of authoritarian model for a humanist book. But some of the lessons are full of wisdom. For example, this is, you can hear a direct response to the New Testament. What do you say of the principle that injury should be recompensed with kindness? The master replied, with what then will you recompense kindness? Recompense injury with justice and kindness with kindness. Do not offer them the other cheek. Give them justice. But if they're kind to you, then be kind to them. But again, with the sage, the master teaches, you get a flavor of the superior man does this, the inferior man does this. It's very black and white, all or nothing. My favorite, one of my favorite readings I remember from the early days of humanist Judaism when I began to pay attention to it, uh, was a reading that said, there were a lot of the good people and the bad people readings. Uh, the good people do this, the bad people do that. And one of them said, the good people see the world in shades of, black, of gray. They don't see everything as black and white. The bad people see things as black and white. And I said to myself, well, what, what goes on here? <laughs> there seems to be a problem here. But after all, having a contradiction within itself is part of every Bible, perhaps even this one, as we'll see. So now in the book of songs, he's attempting poetry. Now, when philosophers attempt poetry, it can be successful or not always successful. It's supposed to be like the Psalms, and many of the Psalms are lamentations of suffering or celebrations of divine deliverance. But here, his songs, or his psalms, so to speak, are praise for beauty and joy, laments for loss, asking for help, but help from other people, and finding ways to think better about the world. When you've had a bad day, he says, look at the children laughing. Maybe tomorrow will be better. Or in Song 30, he says, what do I need a lot of things for? doesn't matter that my house is small. One cannot sleep in two rooms at once. He spends a lot of time on beauty and the beauty of the other. He'll say breasts. He'll say thighs. But sometimes he's clumsy. So I'll give you an example. This is song 77. 
and I apologize for the clumsiness. The charming girl gave me a pair of apples. I think she had set fire to those apples with the, touch, or with the torch of love. For I burn, I burn, I burn. Yet instead of two breasts, my luckless hand fondled two apples. Okay. <laughs> Again, a little clumsy, right? Now he's trying to write prose. He's trying to write philosophy. He's One person can't do all of those genres. It's very rare that you have someone who would be a poet and a scholar and historian and a philosopher and all the other metiers that are involved in creating a Bible. So if he's not as good on the poetry, perhaps he'll be stronger elsewhere. Now the next chapter, I have to confess, I bailed on about halfway through because it's very long and tedious. But fortunately, I'd read it before, my freshman year of college, when I read Herodotus's history. Because what he's done in his histories is he describes the war between Greece and Persia that took place in the 5th century BCE. And I read Herodotus, I recognized the story and the stories within the story. I didn't need to read it again. Rewritten by A.C. Grayling. Supposedly, the lesson he's trying to draw from this history is a little bit about the origin of the birthplace of philosophy, that is Greek Athens under Pericles. It's a little bit about a battle between Athenian democratic virtue against Eastern despotism, the power of free people to fight for their freedom instead of mercenary armies under a despotic king. But it's not that black and white again, because what was Athens' democracy like? Well, women couldn't vote. Slaves couldn't vote. You know what the Greeks called anyone who wasn't Greek? Barbarian. So a highlight of multicultural democracy? Hardly. And even more importantly, he missed an opportunity. If he wants to write a book called Histories, is Greek history inherently more humanistic or inspirational than any other example of any other culture anywhere in the world? Couldn't you have chosen fascinating episodes from the broad range of the human experience? Instead of one long, long, long book, something like 20 or 30% of the book, about this one war? His next book he calls Proverbs. And the book of Proverbs in the Bible is a meditation on wisdom, written as a long letter from a father to a son. In Grayling's Proverbs, it's a collection of aphorisms from A to Z. Now, it's an interesting reference source. If you want to know clever words about advice, or children, or avarice, or cantankerousness, or who needs to go on the web? Now, you can open the good book and read this about advice. Advice is what the wise do not need and fools do not take. Who will not be advised cannot be helped. Advice most needed is least heeded. If the advice be good, it matters not who gave it. These are all interesting ideas, and, but after you get to letter C, the letter D, you begin to run out of steam. It's not the kind of thing you sit down and read all the way through. You, you know, I mean, honestly, it's a, it's a good bathroom book, right? Sit down for a little bit, and you can get some insight, and then move it on, and you'll pick it up with the next letter next time. But it's not reading one in a row. But after all, who sits down and reads the Bible from cover to cover either? If you look to it for insight or wisdom. In this case, you look to it for a good quote, for a speech. But you can't give a source. 
other than A.C. Grayling. His next chapter is called The Lawgiver. He turns to politics. And again, I thought to myself, I've read this before. It's John Locke, it's John Stuart Mill, it's Aristotle and Plato. What is the right form of government? How should the leader lead? You cannot surrender your right to think. You always make up your own mind, so you shouldn't legislate it out of existence. It's stupid and dangerous. Aristotle says there are three forms of government. Monarchy, aristocracy, and a constitutional government, where you have rule by the people. But each of these forms of government can degrade. So a monarchy can become a tyranny. And an aristocracy can become an oligarchy. And constitutional government can become a democracy, a rule by the mob. Well, again, an interesting insight, but I've read it before. I've read it elsewhere. But that's part of his point, is to draw on the wisdom of others and make it accessible. At the same time, the style of this book is a little too philosophical categorizing. There are three forms of government. There are three keys to be happy. There are three. Okay, enough listing. He has a book called Acts, just like the Bible. And the New Testament has a book called Acts, which describes the early deeds of the church. In this case, he describes four case studies and personalities. And surprise, they're all Greek or Roman. That's the theme. He profiles Lycurgus of Sparta, who set up the Spartan system of government and personal discipline. It was a culture of self-denial, of collectivism, abnegating the individual, and fear of foreigners, banning strangers from the city. He discusses Pericles of Athens, a paragon of oratory, not always a virtue. He discusses Cicero the lawyer before Caesar became emperor, and Cato the censor in Rome, who was known for his self-discipline, but also his puritanical moralizing applied even to other people. Now, Grayling admits in chapter one, these people are not perfect, but there's something in their lives we can learn from, sometimes positive and sometimes negative. It's an interesting conceit. When we look at acts, let's look at what people do and see if we like it or not. We do that all the time. But wouldn't it be nice again to get a little bit wider range of choices, of examples? And at one point in reading this book, I wrote a comment on the side, or the equivalent of the margins in a Kindle edition. And I said, uh, this is just not Bible-worthy. It's interesting, but not timeless, not universal and inspirational. And after all, there's an irony in this. Again, I mentioned the self-contradiction of Bibles. He spends all this time on Greeks and Romans. And then in Epistles number 17, which is the next book, he says, as you have not much time to read, you should employ it in reading what is the most necessary, and that is modern historical, geographical, chronological, sociological, and political knowledge of the world, the science and investigations of the learned as reported to the public, and the debates of literature and philosophy. And this line just jumped out at me. Many who are reckoned good scholars, though they know pretty accurately the history and culture of Athens and Rome, are totally ignorant of the same in any one country now in the world, even of their own. Mr. Grayling, you spent all this time on Greek and Roman. All the names of all your parables are Greek and Roman. All your philosophers are Greek and Roman. All your historical examples are Greek and Roman. All of your models of behavior are Greek and Roman. And you say, don't spend too much time on the models of Greek, Greek and Roman. Greek and Roman. Well, I might have said, amen, the line in epistles. Oh, well. And finally, his last chapter 
is what he calls the good. He called it the equivalent of revelations in the Bible, but instead of a vision of the end of days, for him, it's a vision of the best way to live our days. In the book of Proverbs in the original Bible, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In Grayling's Bible, the first step to the good life is to seek wisdom and give up fear. It's not to fear, it's to know and to be brave enough to know. At the very end, in chapter 8 of the good, he gives his 10 suggestions, equivalent of commandments. So I'll give you his 10, and you'll tell me what you think. Love well. Seek the good in all things. Harm no others. Think for yourself. Take responsibility. Respect nature. Do your utmost. Be informed. Be kind. Be courageous. At the end, he adds, at least sincerely try. I guess you get a star for effort. Now, as I've criticized some of the book, I don't want you to think it's a bad book or not a useful book. There are a lot of positives. Grayling himself, in an interview, said, this book is not against religion. It just ignores religion. And by ignoring it, it shows that there is as much, if not more, of a resource already in our hands. Not that you have to be anti-religious to find meaning in life. In fact, he doesn't spend a lot of time talking about religion at all. He alludes to it once or twice. But his focus is a positive style of life. That's why it's humanism and not atheism. It's not anti, it's pro. As we would say, we face the realities of life with courage and not despair. And there's plenty of useful material here much more than you'd find in the traditional religious Bible, whatever version you're looking at. I mean, on some level, you are doing a needle in a haystack, even in Grayling's book, because some of it's boring and some of it's not well-written and whatever. But there are aphorisms that are wonderful and insights that are important. And there's a lot more needles in this haystack than there are in the other haystack. He talks about the importance of self-control. Not answering bad behavior with bad behavior. That your self-discipline is more important than responding to bad behavior. In Parables, chapter 1, he writes, Is it true that in both man and nature all things grow with time? Penecros answered, There is one thing that does not, and that is grief. Grief fades. It does not grow with time. He focuses on the community, not just the individual. Some humanists are absolute individualists. Develop your own power, self-actualized at the point of humanism. In this case, he talks a lot about the importance of friendship, the importance of leaving a positive legacy, the importance of working together to improve the world. And he does provide inspiration. I want to end with Songs 89. How can the statue last longer than its maker? Hard stone outlasts even hard hearts. There is a live image in the cold stone, and the chisel cuts it free and gives it life. Its maker becomes ashes after the years have bent him down. Nature is thus defeated by art, though nature struck art many sharp and heavy blows. Nature is defeated by art. We leave a legacy after us that is stronger than the natural world from which we come. We transcend nature with human power. That is the true Bible of the human experience.
in all of our variety and diversity. This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening.